So, we are going to talk. Keep talking. One of my kids leant over my shoulder and went, part six, are you still talking about ambassadors, Dad? <laughs> He's obviously very excited to hear part six. Um, <laughs> I said, yeah, and I'm going to keep talking about it probably till Christmas, but there we go. As long as God keeps giving me something to say, I'm going to keep talking about it. So we've been talking about these few verses uh, the last times I've been uh, sharing and uh, this idea that there is a ministry of reconciliation, uh, that that ministry, a message of reconciliation has been given to us, it's been committed to us, that's really what this life is all about, it's about bringing people together, it's about restoring people, that's the ministry that God has given us because he first reconciled us to him and now he's asking that we reconcile other people and us as well. In fact we could say this that actually the Christian faith is about restoring people to their original design as lovers of Jesus, lovers of themselves and lovers of one another. That's really and if you are the way to know whether you are growing in Jesus, whether you're maturing is to ask do I love Jesus more, do I love myself more and do I love other people more? Because if you do, then that tells you everything you need to know, that actually you are being more and more restored, which is a beautiful thing. And last week we talked about uh, the first line um, on those verses about um, not regarding people from a worldly point of view, and we talked about celebrating difference, and actually rather than shutting down or tolerating difference, we've got to learn to celebrate. But this morning I want to think about the last line, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want to talk about being right. Anybody enjoy being right? Okay, then listen up. Um, We all enjoy being right, don't we? But I think we've got being right a little bit muddled in many many ways, maybe different ways than you might think I'm going to talk about, because I always like to subvert it a little bit. But this idea of being the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, righteousness is about being right. At a really simple level, righteousness is about being right. And it's this idea of being right that I want to explore. It seems many of us worry about getting it right. We worry about making the right choices, being in the right place, giving the right amount, being in the right job, being in the right relationship, having the right answers, knowing the right responses. Basically, we spend a lot of time worrying about being right and deeply fearful about being wrong. Most of us live in that place, have been fearful about getting it wrong, and we want to get it right, but we worry about getting it right. And um, many people are very concerned about making the right choices, and many people want to make those right choices because they want to please Jesus. And their thinking goes that they want to please Jesus They want to make Jesus pleased, proud, and delighted. That's the way many people's thinking goes that know Jesus. They want to make him happy. They want him to just look down on them and just be so happy and clap them and be so proud of them. And the thinking goes that if they make the right choices, then Jesus will be all those things to them. But I don't think like that. I just don't think like that. I don't see Jesus as watching me, waiting for me to make a right choice so he can be proud of me. This is, this is a prime example of what I was talking about last week. Do you remember last week I said that he created us in our image and then we recreated him in our mad image. So he created us and then we looked at one another and went, God must be a better version of us. 
But to think that God is a better version of you does God a great injustice. Because God is not a better version of you. He's not even a better version of you. He's a better version. Um, just for those who don't understand Yorkshire. Um, we'll pray for you later. But <clears throat> we often think of, of God as like the best dad we can think of. But even that, even that does God so many injustices. Because your idea of the best dad ever is based on your experience of a dad. And even if you take that earthly dad to the best ever, it still is so far away from God that it's just, it's, it's a, a universe away from what God's really like. So we can't, we can't think of him as we think of each other. You see, righteousness is a state you entered into as soon as you said yes to Jesus. As soon as you said yes to Jesus, righteousness was a state, a permanent state that you entered into. And righteousness means right with God. So as soon as you said yes to Jesus, whatever that means to you, then you were right with God, permanently and forever. Not for a little moment, not until you made a better choice, not until you made a terrible choice, not until you made that really, really, really terrible choice that just kind of eased you out of righteousness. No. You were in righteousness forever. That's what it means, the righteousness of God. And we've talked about this tons of times and I've done tons of different illustrations with white towels and black towels and burning things and all that sort of stuff if you've been here a little while. But the idea is this, that you are the righteousness of God. This is not anything to do with your choices or your decisions or your thoughts. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus regardless of your actions, because this is about your identity. It's about who you are. It's not about your actions. It's about your identity. And your identity in Jesus is that you are right. It's got nothing to do with your choices, past, present, or future. And has everything to do with what Jesus has already done when he lived, died, and rose again. According to Thayer's Dictionary, righteousness is the state of a person who is as they ought to be. The state of a person who is as they ought to be before God. That's what you are. So as soon as you said yes to Jesus, your state, your position before God was, is as it ought to be. Done. Dusted. Of course, we have a long way from my words becoming reality in our heads. And that's the challenge of the Christian faith, is these words to become what we are. But righteousness is about being made right. Not as a one-off until you make a mistake, but permanently and Forever. So, when Jesus looks at you, he sees you as right. He sees you as right. He sees you as right in him. And you couldn't be more right if you tried because you were already right. But lots, lots of our choices are based on trying to be more right. So we want to get it right. We want to make the right choice. And, we, and, and a lot of that is done because we think that if we do the right choice then that'll be good for Jesus. And I, but here's the thing. No, I won't go there just yet, because I've got a few pages before I get there. I, I remember as a teenager, and older than that, but particularly working with teens, there was always the question, what's God's plan for my life? What's the plan of God for my life? What track am I meant to be on? What job, who am I meant to marry? What uni am I meant to go to? Where am I meant? This was like the big question. So this is like, how do you, late... How old am I? Yeah, late, kind of early 90s, like, 
this was, my, my life was consumed as a teenager in early 20s with what God wanted for my life. And I assumed there was a right path. There was a job he wanted me to do. There was a house he wanted me to buy. There was a person he wanted me to marry. And if I just found out what those things were, everything would be swimming. And then I thought, I know, I'll read this book because that'll help me. But it seems to be very unclear about those things. I don't know whether you've realized that. Quite unhelpful, actually, many times about those things, it seems. Of course, that depends on how you read it. But I talked about that for two hours on Sunday night. So if you want to know more about that, you can listen to it. I slowly worked out the Bible isn't that kind of book and Jesus isn't that kind of Jesus. So I grew up believing, like I said, there's a right person to marry, right career, all that. But as I came to understand Jesus more, I realized that that was pretty much nonsense. I realized God did not have my life mapped out for me specifically. And I only had to think about my own kids to see this. So, of course... I want good things for my kids. What half-decent father doesn't want good things for his kids? But it's not like I'm going, right, Joshua, I think you should go to this university, and Isaac, you're going to choose your A-levels in a bit, you should choose these A-levels. I'm not thinking about that. I'm just thinking, well, find out what your difference is, and go do that, and where are you gifted, and where are you talented, and what can I do to release you into that? What might that mean? What might it cost? Well, probably a fortune, but it doesn't matter because they're my kids and I just want to release them into everything that's good for them. Of course, it's, it's no different with Father. I want them to find people they can delight in being with, people who challenge them and compliment them. That's what I want. I want a life partner that will challenge and compliment them. Don't you? Don't you want that? For somebody who will challenge and compliment them? I want jobs they wake up to each day excited to go to. I want homes they, they long to go back to. What that specifically means, I, who cares? But if they've got a home they want to go back to and a job they want to go to and a person they want to be with, well, that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Well, do you not think fathers like that? Do you not think that's how father thinks about you? Do you not think those are the sort of thoughts he's got? The plan's much less like this job, this job, then this job, then this person. The plan's much more like, go and enjoy it, son. Go and find out what you're meant to do and go and enjoy it. Find out what your difference is and do that. And you see, if you know you're already right with God, those choices become a lot easier. Because you're not trying to find the right thing because you're already right. And if you're already right, you can go and enjoy it. Of course, there's the right way to enjoy it, which we'll get on to in a moment. But many of us know that we are right with God, or know it to a degree, and still worry about getting it right and making right choices. All from right hearts that want to love him and bless him. But actually, a lot of the time, God's response to, is this right, God, or should I do this, God? God's response is, I'm not right bothered. Not really. He's like, I don't know, choose. I mean, obviously, there are some things that he's like, well, that won't be very helpful, and that would be more helpful. But a lot of the time, you know, where should I live? Which house should I buy? Which uni car should I do? Even the big questions, it's not like God's like, mm, come on, let's make sure you come down to the right side of the argument here. He's just not like that. You're already right. Because what does it say? There's one thing that says pleases God, and it's in Hebrews 11, verse 6. Faith pleases God. That's what pleases God, faith. Not, not trying to work out what the exact right choice. Ooh, should I have beans or scrambled egg for breakfast? What do you think, God? I don't chuffing care. Just eat some of it. 
Like, honestly, like, I mean, he probably does care because he loves you even more than I do, but you get my point. He's really not fussed. Of course, the reason we don't like that, though, is because then we have to choose. It's why people like laws, because laws make life easy. You do this, you don't do this. You do this, you don't do that. Okay, that's fine. So we make laws because we don't want to make choices, because we don't want to take responsibility. But actually, Father God wants you to take responsibility, and he wants you to move in faith, because faith pleases him. What pleases him is not trying to get it right. What pleases him is faith. We don't please him by making right choices, because he's already pleased. You know, it's not like God has a big list of choices, good choices and bad choices on his office wall, and he's like, oh. He just doesn't exist there. He has a heart that's given you everything you need, and if it's not in you, it's in those around you, and says, now put some faith into it, live in a community, talk, be submitted, be accountable, learn together, laugh together, live together, and work it out together, which is exactly what Jesus knew and did, as I'm going to show you. Now, of course, the, the challenge that gets put when you say these things is, okay, well, I can do whatever I want then. Well, of course, you are free, and you'll still be right. But, as we've said last week, when the Corinthians said, well, we can do anything, this is what Paul said to them. You, uh, so he says, you say I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. What's interesting is Paul didn't go, no, you don't have that right. He goes, no, you do have that right, but with freedom comes responsibility. With freedom comes responsibility. Responsibility for you, which is why people, again, like law. Law means no responsibility. I just look up this list of things, okay, I can't do that, fine. No responsibility involved in law. But in grace, in freedom, in righteousness, there's lots of responsibility. But the beautiful thing about righteousness is you're right, whether you make the <coughs> beneficial choice or the not-so-beneficial choice. You're still right. That's the beautiful thing. And that's what we don't always get. So we know that there are some things that are healthy, some things that are unhealthy, some things that are beneficial, some things are not. But it seems that when we make those choices that we know through our conscience and the Holy Spirit and through life that we go, oh, that, that one healthy for me or those around me. That wasn't beneficial. That was not constructive. We then lose this sense of being right. And lots of us suffer under this way of kind of guilt about it. But, but you have to learn to discern the difference between identity and action. Your action was, may have been unhealthy. It may have been unhelpful. It may have hurt you and those around you. And of course, that's not good. But it doesn't make any difference to Jesus. This is the thing. You see, we could say this. Your choice doesn't affect how he thinks about you one way or another. One way or another. So you being a goody two-shoes don't make him any happier. And you being a baddy three-shoes, if they exist. <laughs> I don't know what the opposite is of goody two-shoes. Like, that don't make it change him either. It really does not make any one iota of difference to Jesus. Your choice doesn't affect how he thinks about you one way or another. You're already right. You're already right. However, 
Your choice does affect you and those around you. It doesn't affect how Jesus thinks about you. He's already settled on what he thinks about you, and it's all good, and you are right in him. No matter your past, present, and future choices, he sees you as right and he loves you. The challenge now is to make choices that are good for you and those around you. So it's not, which means it's a different question. The question's not, what can I do to make Jesus happy? Well, he's already happy. The question's a different question. Because now your choices impact you and those around you, but they don't impact him. And we've got to differentiate between the choices, all our choices that, that make a difference on this plane, but don't make any difference on this plane. That's why loads of people, and people who don't understand that go like this in the Christian lives. Oh, I've read my Bible three times a week. Oh, I'm doing good. Oh, I drank too much. I'm doing bad. Like, of course, reading your Bible is good for you. It's healthy. It's beneficial. Drinking too much is not healthy. It's not beneficial. It's not constructive. But it affects you. It doesn't affect him. It makes no difference to him. So the question is not, well, well, what can I do that makes Jesus happy? Our choices are not framed by that, but by something much more powerful. Maybe this is the better question. Knowing I am right in Jesus, what can I do to extend his kingdom in my own life and in the lives of those around me? That's the best question to ask about choices. And of course, within that, there are not many right answers. But we'll get onto that in a minute. Because of course, if there's not many right answers, how do you know what to do? But we'll get onto that. But really, it's about extending his kingdom. And his kingdom is, is very simply where he lives and rules and reigns. Where Jesus lives. And of course, he lives everywhere. But where, you remember he taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, your kingdom come in heaven as on earth. And it's this idea that his kingdom is whether, wherever earth looks like heaven. That's his kingdom. Wherever earth looks like heaven, that's the kingdom right there. Or he's starting to look like heaven, because it'll never quite look like heaven, but it looks more like heaven. We could say it like that. It looks more like heaven. What choices can I make that will see more of the kingdom in my life and more of the kingdom in the lives of those around me? But it's all done from this point of knowing that we are already right. Which is very freeing. And that's why, you see, you can't really move in faith if you don't already know you're right because you're too scared. If you were, because if you're not right, that means one of these choices could be wrong. And if I get it wrong, then I need this guilt cycle and it all goes terrible. But if I'm already right and I'm moving in faith, well, God's already blessed it. And he'll make it right one way or another. One way or another, he makes it right because he's pleased with faith. And if you're thinking about a decision and you're talking with people and you're submitting it, you're praying about it, you're listening, you're sharing with people, you're getting wisdom and insight and you're accountable and you're submitted, I tell you what, every time God makes it right. It might not be how you think it should be right, and it might not work out how you think it should work out, but do it like that, God makes it right. Because that's what he does. That's what he does. Now, of course, the Bible plays a big role in helping us discern how we might do that. But we've got to read the Bible as it was designed to be read. And like I said, I spent two hours explaining how to read it on, on Sunday night. I think uh, we sent an email out, didn't we, to everybody with the audio on there. I know a couple of you asked about sharing it. Feel free to share it with people you know. Please don't just, if it's helpful for them. 
the, the thing about this stuff when I talk about it is, you know me, so you listen to it through my heart. And if you give it to somebody who doesn't know me or doesn't know a little bit about me, or somebody who, you, who yeah, doesn't know me, then they can hear it in a different way. And it can actually be unhelpful for them. But if you, so feel free, if there's people you know, you think that might be helpful, just you might have to, if they ask some questions, you might have to remind them of, of who you know me to be. Because um, it, yeah. There might be some people who find it difficult to listen to what I said. Because I just challenge some assumptions about the Bible that we've had for many years. Um, which is a good thing. Because we should challenge some things. So, we could say this. Many people have been told the Bible is the instruction manual for life and that all the answers can be found in there, which isn't quite true. The Bible is the word of God and it is absolutely inspired by God, but it's not an answer book. It was never intended to be an answer book. It's a book that leads you to wisdom. That's what the Bible does. It leads you to wisdom. And I want to explore this for a few minutes because... Lots of people, when they're making choices and wanting to be right, they go, well, what does the Bible say about it? Because the Bible must have some answers about how to make right choices. They also want to be right about the Bible. But you only have to go on the internet for five minutes to see that apparently there are many, many different right answers from the same book that are completely contradictory. So it's clearly not as simple as the Bible being an answer book. Because if it were, there'd be one answer, there'd be one denomination, one church, and it'd all be wonderful. As it is, they're in. And, and sadly, lots of people have decided that being right is more important than anything else. And that's when you get people lobbing Bible verses around as hand grenades, which is pretty certain not what Jesus intended. But in order, you see, this, this idea that there's a right answer for a situation or a right way forward. It's a very, in fact, even this idea of being right is a very 20th century idea. It's, the ancients did not understand the idea of being right. Certainly the Jewish tradition doesn't understand the idea of being right. It just doesn't, as I'm going to show you. But we have this thing, there must be a right answer. And of course, that comes from our education system, which teaches you learn these facts, you regurgitate them, and then we give you a certificate which isn't particularly helpful because it doesn't actually teach you to think many times. It just teaches you to regurgitate things and know what the right answer is. So if you're doing an exam, you have to revise what the right answer is. So all growing up, you get taught there's a right answer. And if you get the right answer, you get the tick next to your name and you get the mark and you get the certificate. And then we come to our Christian faith and the Bible with that same thought process. But it doesn't work. It just doesn't work like that. So... In order to do that, we're going to talk about interpretation, incarnation, and invitation. In Jesus' day, nobody had a Bible, because it wasn't written. Well, the New Testament one, because it was been lived out. There were some scrolls in the synagogue, and each week a specific section of a specific scroll would be read by the rabbi, he was the, the leader, to the people. And this specific section would have been uh, written down years in advance. So it was a bit like a, a liturgy you might have in an Anglican church. Certain days of the year, you read certain passages, and you'd read. And the, um, the Hazan, which would be the worship leader in your synagogue, uh, on, on the Saturday would take the scroll from the ark. He would parade it through the synagogue and invite everybody to dance. 
in honor of the Torah because it was held in high regard. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's also called the law. It was like key to Jewish tradition. By Jesus' day, of course, they had the prophets and, and all the rest. But Torah was the, the key. Someone then would read the allocated section of the day. And then there'd be commentary and discussion of what it means and how you live it. By everybody present. So when Jesus walked into the synagogue, and he stands up as he does in Luke and goes, and he quotes Isaiah, that wouldn't, it wouldn't be like one of you standing up now and going, hang on a minute. Because it, it was completely normal. It was normal for anybody to stand up and go, well, this is what I think Torah means. No, this is what I think Torah means. Mm, I'm not sure that's what Torah means. It was assumed that everybody had a say in what they thought. It was assumed that there were some questions. It was assumed you had something to contribute and something to say about how Torah should be lived out and what Torah meant. It was assumed you had questions. Which is why, in life groups, there's always a Bible passage now and it says, what do you think? Because I want to get back to this place where we understand we've all got something to say. And that our opinion is valid. And our questions are valid. Of course, it, and I'll, it may uphold the general Torah or it may not, and we'll get on to that. But actually, we've got to learn to engage with this book. We've got to learn to read it and go, oh, what about this? What about that? What about the other? That's healthy. That's good. And of course, I know everybody immediately goes, oh, yeah, but what about, what about when somebody comes out with something really weird? Well, that's called being in community. It's called loving people. It's called helping people. It's called growing together. That's called healthy. What's unhealthy is when it all gets shut down and nobody can say anything. That's called a dictatorship. That's not community. That's not family. Family is, okay, and family's talking about it. Family's going, well, what about this and what about that? And, well, does that fit with everything else we know? And of course, it's a, it's a little bit of a risk. It's why most people don't do it, because it can go all sorts of places. But that's why... And, and just while we're on this, by the way, just, you know, sometimes I've led many groups over the times, and sometimes you have an off day, and you don't quite manage to kind of keep it on track. Don't just let the leader of your group keep it on track. Chip in. Help them out. Don't sit there and complain about them when you go home. All right? Do something about it. Yeah? Just go, hey, listen, should we, should we get back to this? Do you know what I mean? Like, help. Let's be together. Sometimes that oh, so-and-so's leading it. I wish they'd shut that person up. Okay, well, maybe you could help then, rather than sitting there moaning about it. Because you've got something to say, haven't you? And maybe if you are going on, show up. Let somebody else talk. No, but this is how we grow, you see. I know it's not easy. I know we'd rather go to a group where we have a timer and everybody has four minutes. But that's not family. That's not learning. That's not growing. That's not loving. Some of us need to learn to open our mouths. Some of us need to learn to close our mouths. That's okay. Let's all learn together. And let's do it in love. Amen? Okay. But in Jesus' day, the Bible of the day was read together in a community. And then it was explored together in community. And there were no right or wrong answers, and questions were not just welcomed, but they were positively expected, because a question showed you wanted to engage with the text. You wanted to grapple with it and find out how to live out this Torah. You see, for many people in this world, the Bible is the end of the discussion. The Bible says this, that's it. The Bible is used to shut people down and shut conversations down. Like I said, throwing verses out like hand grenades, trying to blow up the other person's argument. I just walk away from those conversations these days. And so should you. 
But to many people, the Bible is a place you go to to get the right answer, and then you shout as loud as you can until you bully the person who has the wrong answer, which is also from the Bible, into submission. But in Jesus' day, and today in Jewish culture, and it should be in our culture, the Bible is the start of the discussion. The Bible is not, it's not some landing pad where you go, this is what it says. The Bible is the launch pad off which to work it out. Because, and this wasn't a, an intellectual exercise, it was about how you do life. You read Torah together, and then you worked out how to live it out together. In other words, you interpret it together. And you live with the assumption there was always something new to learn, something new to see, a new way to understand it and work it out. That, of course, is what it means to live in faith. We take the Bible, and then we listen to the commentary and the discussion in our community, and those we trust and those we submit to, and then we make a choice in faith, knowing that God is already pleased with us. That's what it means to live this thing out. And we seem to be so concerned with getting the right answers, but, but the Jewish faith, Jesus' tribe, was not particularly bothered about certainty. I have a book in my office by Lawrence Kushner called God Was in This Place and I, I Did Not Know It. He's a Jewish rabbi, and it's the story of um, a man in the Old Testament who fell asleep on a stone, whose name I've completely forgotten. Jacob, that's his name. And, um, and he had this vision, and he says, God was in this place and I, I did not know it. The book is seven different messages, completely different, all from that same thing. Taking completely different angles. It's called turning the gem. They would take Tara, rabbis would take Tara and they'd see it as a gem. And they'd go, we can look at it in this light, or this light, or this light, or this light. Because they understood there was hidden depths all along. There was always more. Always more. The Bible has to be interpreted. And this was a given to Jesus. Torah was a starting point. Even now, lots of people say things like, the Bible says. No, that means you say the Bible says. Anybody who says the Bible says this really means I say the Bible says this. Because it has to be interpreted. Think about it. Do not work on the Sabbath. Okay, well, what does that mean? How do I do that? And, and, and you read that in the, there, there was huge Jewish books of what that meant. Because somebody said, some rabbi said, well, you can walk up to a thousand steps. Some rabbi said, you can pull your horse out of a ditch, but you can't because that's work. They were battling with it working. What does it mean now? What does it mean to not work on the Sabbath? What does it mean to rest? What does it mean to do? What does it mean for doctors and nurses for 30 years now to be a policeman? Well, he couldn't be it. He couldn't have every Sunday off. He had to work. And many other people, what does it mean? Well, it has to be interpreted. What does it mean to honor your parents? Well, it meant something very different 2,000 years ago than it does now. Now we have questions like, do I get a carer? Should I put them in a home? Do I go there every day? Do I not see my grandkids because I'm looking after my parents? What does it mean to one of your parents? You see how it has to be outworked? You can't just go, this is, the Bible says, honor your parents. Okay, great. Well, what does that mean in, in Shipley in 2019 for me? And what it means for me might not mean what it means for you. That's the fascinating thing. But we all want a law that says it's okay. When they hit 85, stick them in a home. No, but you understand me. That's what people want, but it don't work like that. Because some people are on their own at 103, and other people at 67 are struggling. It don't work like that, does it? But sometimes we want it to work like that. 
It has to be interpreted. I didn't see many of you greeting one another with a holy kiss when you came in this morning. But it says it. I think it was about 15 when I read that. I thought, that's a great idea. I am following that instruction. <laughs> Just doing what the Bible says. Come here, love. <laughs> if only I had that much, uh, that much confidence when I was 15. I probably thought it and never actually did it. I don't see any of you ladies covering your heads this morning. But it says it in the Bible. But do you see what I mean? We, we already interpret it. We just don't think about it. We just don't think about it. And I can't because, well, I, yeah, I could talk forever, but you, you can listen to it about more and more of it on our perspectives last night. And I share this with you for two reasons. Firstly, don't bother getting involved in the Bible says showdown where some lovely, well-meaning Christian throws Bible verses as hand grenades at you. Just walk away. Just walk away. Because it won't end well. You're already right in Jesus and you don't need to prove anything to anyone and Jesus is more than capable of standing up for himself. <coughs> Secondly, I tell you, because as an ambassador, it's not about being right about the Bible. Join the long and distinguished tradition of letting the Bible be what it is. Of course, you will hold certain things dear interpret certain parts in certain ways. But that doesn't mean you have to get into a slanging match proving your interpretation is right. Know what you know. Be sure of what you know. But interestingly, what I've found as I've grown is that what I know, I know like never before. But what I know is less than I've ever known. So what I actually know, I know like never before. And that is my identity in him. That's what I know like never before. Everything else, I'm like, well, this is what I think about it right now. So I have a thought about it, but I'm not, I'm more than open. Because every time I seem to decide what God says about a topic, he seems to blow it out of the box. He just does. So maybe we've got to be mature about it. Maybe we've got to agree or disagree. Maybe we've got to recognize we're seeing different sides of the same gem. Maybe we've got to be prepared to talk about it without the need to be right about it. Being able to talk about it without the need to be right about it. It's okay. Let me tell you what I think about it, but I'm not going to... If you think differently, okay, that's fine. That's healthy. It's all right. I, I don't need to... Anybody who has the need to kind of prove to you that they're right just shows up a huge insecurity in them. And if you were like that, it shows up an insecurity in you. You don't need to prove that you're right. You need to know what you know. And be content in that. I've realized that that's actually a big, big thing in maturity, is just being okay with people disagreeing with you and not having to prove that they're wrong. Someday my kids will get there. They have this incredible ability to decide that they're right about the most ridiculous things. But I think it's called age and maturity. Because I was once like that when I was a lot older than them. So the Bible has to be interpreted, but it also has to be incarnated. Incarnated means lived out. So in Matthew, Jesus says he hasn't come to abolish the prophets, but to fulfill them, which is a very Jewish way of talking about Torah, about the Bible. Because to abolish Torah meant to say, oh no, you're way off track, that's not the right way to live out Torah. To fulfill Torah meant to say, yeah, we, we think this is the right way to live out Torah. So when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill Torah, he goes, hey, this is how you live out Torah. 
This is what it means. This is the fulfillment of everything that's been written down here and now. To fulfill Torah would be to find agreement about how to live it out. It would be our way of saying, Amen, I agree. You see, it was never about the words. It's always been about how the words were lived out. It wasn't about arguing over what the words meant. It was about doing the words. It was about incarnation. And Jesus, of course, came as the ultimate incarnation of Torah. When he says he's fulfilled Torah, he means the way he walks, talks, and acts is the ultimate outworking of the words. And in these words and actions, he offers new interpretations. He put flesh and blood on Torah. He brings new interpretations and he incarnates the word. But of course, Jesus isn't here now, but you are. And just like Jesus, you are not called to be right because you already are. You are called to love. You're not called to be right. You're not called to make sure everybody knows what you think is right. You're called to love people. You don't see Jesus going around insisting that his version of Torah is the right version. He says what he thinks, and then he loves people. And he spends much more time loving people than he does telling them what's right. And we've got to be careful we don't get caught up into this is right, that's right, the other's right. Well, let's spend more time loving people than worrying about who's right or who's not. Jesus doesn't seem to engage in the I'm right, you're wrong campaign, and he won't today, whether in person or online, and instead reaches out constantly and continually in love to anyone and everyone he comes across. He interprets it, and then he incarnates the Bible, and his best interpretation, if you like, is the incarnation of it. And of course, it's the same for you. The best way you can interpret the Bible is to incarnate it, is to live it out, is to actually show it as well as speak it, rather than just speak it. And then when you interpret in your own life, as you live it out, you have to invite others to do the same. That's the invitation. It's about, hey, let's live out this life together. In community, in family, extending that invitation to everybody and anybody. But this invitation is an invitation to outwork life together, using the Bible as a starting point, not an end point, for outworking life together. And it's an invitation to live life together, to work life out together, to explore life together, safe in the knowledge that you are already right in him. Because if you're right, you can outwork it. And of course, let me be clear, that's you in a community, in a family, with people around you, with the wisdom around you, with people who you submit to, people you're accountable to, people who you trust. In that place, that's why it's exciting. Because it's like, ooh, it's also why it makes my life difficult, because it means I don't have a set of set answers to set problems. Because every issue can have a different solution. Every issue can have a different solution. And it doesn't make it easy leading a church like that, because sometimes people think that you're treating people differently. So they go, well, when I were in this place, you did this, but when they were in this place, you did that. And I go, yep. And they don't like it. But of course, this is person A and this is person B and as we saw last week they're different so why would the solution, different people in different times with different makeups different circumstances, why would the solution be the same? Of course it would follow the same principle but it would take into account their past their present, where they've come from, where they're going, where they're heading it takes all that into account so I realise at times you, you might have looked and gone oh that's a bit weird Adam said this to me, but he said that to them, and I'm sure we said the same thing to him. Yeah, but that's called wisdom. That's wisdom. 
And of course, it might be right, it might be wrong. But I'm already right, and I'm believing it in faith, believing that God will make it right. You see, it'd be much easier for me to have a law. Much easier to have a rule book that just goes, this problem, this answer. That'd be much easier. I'd have to spend much less time thinking and praying and all the rest. But who wants a rule book? Because that, that all got, got rid of. But this book gives you wisdom, which is much more exciting, much more powerful, and much more just genuinely fantastic. But we've got to interpret this book, we've got to incarnate this book, and then we've got to invite. I'm going to talk about invitation more in a few weeks' time when I next share about the power of invitation. Because invitation is very powerful. It's a very powerful thing is to invite, to offer an invitation is very powerful. And we'll talk about the power of it. But for now, I want you to know this. I want you to know that you don't need to worry about being right because you are right. In Christ Jesus, you are right. And in that right, you are forgiven. And your choices are not about making him happy. Your choices are about bringing the kingdom on the face of the earth for you and those around you. And of course, when we've made wrong choices, we recognize the hurt, the pain. We say sorry to those we've hurt. We forgive ourselves. We say sorry to Jesus because we know that's not the best thing. But ultimately, we know we are still right in him. Amen? Amen. Okay, I think, are we going to sing now? Excellent. All right, why don't you guys come up? Let's stand together, shall we?